0: This is Monocle's House View coming up today. As the US Senate debates whether or not to call witnesses in President Donald Trump's impeachment trial, we check in on the latest and ask why the Republicans are so keen to block testimony. As the moment of Brexit descends, we'll survey the multinational Monocle team for their thoughts about leaving the European Union.
1: We'll look back at the week in news to find out what, if anything, we've learned, plus they said it would all be fine, totally fine, but they inherited small fortunes and played golf three times a week. I'm now wondering how I'll afford the green fees. What with that divorce bill? The
0: looming hangover. I'm Andrew Muller. Monaco's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. It's likely to be a long night in Washington, D.C., but this or early tomorrow could well be the day that the U.S. Senate votes to acquit President Donald Trump of the charges brought against him by the House of Representatives. Of the potential coincidence of Trump getting off the hook and the U.K. leaving the E.U. within a few hours of each other, it can at least be said that we're getting a great deal over with at once. But much rests on the vote to be held imminently on whether the Senate votes to call witnesses, The necessary majority to do that will require a minimum of four Republican senators to abandon Trump and vote with the Democrats. I'm joined by Thomas Lewis, Monocle's US election correspondent, as he prepares to light out for the Iowa caucuses. Um, Thomas, do we like the Democrats' chances of getting sufficient Republicans to cross
2: the aisle? I don't know if we do at this moment of talking, Andrew, but things are likely to shift and change pretty quickly. The big blow has come in the form of Lamar Alexander, who is a Republican senator from Tennessee. He's held that seat seat since 2003 and is a long-standing member uh, of the Republican Party. Um, The White House has been watching him for some time. He has long been a fairly moderate voice, uh, but has wavered in this impeachment trial. And the White House thought that they might be able to get him on board to vote against uh, the Democratic call uh, to introduce documents and witnesses to the Senate trial against President Donald Trump. Now, Lamar has issued a statement. Uh, he issued that late last night saying that he felt that the um, Democratic Thats had failed to prove really that what Mr. Trump had done in relation to the phone call with the President of Ukraine and everything surrounding it uh, were not uh, enough to remove a president. From office now, the calculation there is like the calculation for many senators who are more moderate in the Republican Party, who are facing re-election this time around in November this year, um, is that you know the base around them locally likes Donald Trump very much, and that is something they felt they had to take into account. So we'll see what happens behind closed doors. We know that lots of conversations between Republican senators and Democrat leaders in the Senate have been taking place. Um, so we'll have to see what happens in the coming, coming hour, I suppose.
0: Uh, that fear of, or appreciation of, possibly, of Trump's base that you mentioned there, is that the reason? Because this does seem like a bewildering spectacle in many respects, but is that the reason that the Republican Party, at least the Republican Party senators, clearly don't care that they are being seen to hustle this through the Senate as fast as they possibly can and wrap this all up as a foregone conclusion?
2: Well, there are lots of senators for whom that would be true in corners of the country like North Dakota, for example, which uh, voted Donald Trump in by the largest percentage point, I believe, of any state uh, in the country. Um, there are other senators, and that's why Lamar Alexander came into play. You know, him and his colleagues like Susan Collins from Maine or Lisa Makowski from Alaska, you know, they've constantly been in this sort of middle ground, trying to sort of, you know, be a sort of the grown ups in the room, if you like, as other. Um, Uh, more loyalist kind of members of the Republican Party to Donald Trump, kind of do or say whatever he wants, it seems. I think for Susan Collins particularly, she's faced a difficult, difficult time. She is up for a re-election in November. And I think the the sense you're getting in media reports in the US is that a lot of her constituents are starting to put the heat on in that she's constantly portrayed as being this level-headed, moderate voice, but has consistently failed to really stand up against Donald Trump in lots of these big key issues that have faced her and her Senate colleagues uh, since Donald Trump was elected uh, into office back in 2016. So, you know, there are definitely members of the Republican Party who uh, see that supporting Trump is a very secure electoral path for them personally, too. But there are others for whom the picture is much more mixed and it's much more complicated. And don't forget, we've never had a sitting U.S. president facing re-election, you know, undergoing a Senate trial to remove him from office at the same time. Uh, So it really is kind of an extraordinary moment, which Mitch McConnell, um, the leader of the Senate Republicans, has actually tried to sort of portray as a partisan battle rather than a constitutional one. And we'll see what effect that has, particularly if he is, as we expect, acquitted by the Senate a little later today, possibly.
0: Well, on that front, um, as to how this will play in the upcoming presidential election, and you will find out more in coming weeks and months as you go out and speak to voters, but is it your sense so far that any of this circus has changed the mind of
2: a single voter? Well, I think what's interesting to me is that, you know, you look back at the process that took place against Bill Clinton in his final term in office, and you look at the way the Senate conducted themselves then. This was a, deemed to be a, a national moment of, of grave, grave importance, and both sides of the aisle were working together wholeheartedly, um, if you recall, kind of to make sure this process fit the seriousness of the allegations and the office of the president itself. I think what struck me so far is that you speak to a lot of people in the US for whom that, you know, this most grave of procedures that the US has to deploy against a sitting US president um, really is kind of just another part of the process, another part of the fight of the fury that is taking place. And that has become, unfortunately to many people, you know, a normal tone that political discourse takes place in at the moment. So I don't really get the sense that this will be the kind of defining moment to say, you know, investigations against Richard Nixon or Bill Clinton, as I mentioned, whether this will really have the same historical potency going forward in the years to come against Donald Trump than it has in the past. And I think that that should cause a lot of people to sort of do a bit of soul searching, just looking like whether, you know, the political systems in the US have totally been hijacked by partisan debate and that, you know, the the sort of sanctity of something like the Constitution, which is meant to protect the Republic, um, you know, really is still something that is free from being painted in a, a political, party political way.
0: Thomas Lewis, thank you for joining us. You're listening to Monocle's House View on Monocle 24. Later this evening, the United Kingdom will end its 47-year membership of the European Union. Regular listeners to Monocle 24 will probably have guessed that this event will not be the cause of raucous celebrations here at Midori House. There are a number of reasons for this, mostly pertaining to the fact that Brexit is as ridiculous and self-defeating a tantrum as has ever been thrown by a modern nation-state. But key among them is that, in its modest way, this radio station is kind of an exemplar of how Europe can work, a multiplicity of diverse nations pooling their expectations in a common cause and ringing a kind of harmony from their idiosyncrasies. What follows is a whip-round of how Monocle's editorial floor sees January 31st, 2020.
2: My name is Chris Sermak, I'm the affairs editor at Monocle magazine. I'm an Austrian-American citizen and I moved to the UK or to London in October, so pretty new. I'd say it is an emotional day for me too. The main thing that I think about actually is the impact that it could have had on me. Uh, so for example, that the fact that Austria also for a little while had a, an independence from the EU movement, they called it "Exit." in Austria and it just makes me think about the fact that I very much feel that I am a European um, more than I am an Austrian myself and uh, I particularly therefore feel for those people in the UK that feel more European than they are British and uh, wonder what they're going through today.
3: Hi, I'm Carlotta Rubello and I'm a producer at Monocle24. I've been in the UK for nearly eight years now and today is a day of mixed feelings. I don't know myself without freedom of movement. I was born in Portugal within a democracy following 45 years plus of a dictatorship. I was born with a Portugal that belonged to the European Union. I used the Erasmus program to live in Italy. I worked in Brussels at the European Parliament and have spent most of my adult life here in London. So today is a day of mixed emotions where I don't recognize the country that I moved into, but I hope that London will remain the same. Hello, I'm Chiara Ramella. I'm the culture editor here at Monocle and I'm Italian. I moved to London over 10 years ago now, and today I feel really numb. I can't really believe it's happening. The sadness really hit the first time when the referendum actually happened, over three years ago now. And now I feel like the pain of the breakup is kind of subsiding and it's giving in to a sense of real loss. I feel quite identity-less because I left Italy so long ago that it's difficult to feel fully Italian anymore. But ever since the referendum happened, it stripped me of the possibility of ever feeling British either. Do I feel European? I don't know anymore. I don't know what feeling European even is like because that identity is a little bit blurry and I hope that one day this kind of diasporic identity will find a new root. and I hope that that identity will become eventually much more defined and European in nature.
4: Hi, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. I've been living in the UK for 12 years. I'm from Brazil. But, uh, you know, I almost feel like an adopted European in a way. My partner is half Polish, uh, half British. And I have to be honest, today I'm feeling very sad. One of the attractions for the UK when I moved here was the fact that it was so close to Europe. So, yeah, my heart is a bit smaller and it is an emotional day. My name's Rhys James and I'm Monocle24's senior news producer. I'm originally from Wales, which is a part of the UK that voted to leave the European Union by a narrow margin back in 2016. Although today is an incredibly sorrowful day for me personally, I hope Brexit will allow people to set aside their differences and begin to work together for the good of all my European friends and colleagues who uh, happen to call the UK home.
0: My name's Tom Hall. I'm a producer here at Monocle24. I live in London. I'm from England. I'm just enormously disappointed today. We've been through confusion and we've been through angry feelings, and now that the process is coming to some kind of part of the end, I think a lot of people are just incredibly sad that nearly 50 years of constructive policymaking and nuanced debate to try and advance a major block of different countries is now coming apart. Thanks for some very short-sighted views, I think, and
4: I think you can only be sad about that. I'm Ben Ryland, and I'm a Remainer. I've been here in the UK for about six years and I have to say, I am quite sad. I have feelings and they are hurt today. I came to the UK uh, excited to be a part of this big multinational membership group thing known as the European Union. Being an Australian, I am both a Commonwealth citizen And I'm married to an Italian, which means I can go and live and work in the EU. So I sort of have the best of both worlds now that I am still living here in London, being able to vote in UK elections and go and live over in Naples if I want to. So on a personal level, I won't be that affected. However, being here through the entire Brexit process has given me a perspective into a very dirty, nasty and quite frankly a dishonest political process and it really is a case lesson in what not to do when it comes to posing big political questions to an electorate. Hopefully there will be lessons to be learned but today I'm not feeling so confident. I am Marco Hippi, a senior producer and presenter here on Monaco24, and I am originally from Finland. During the Brexit campaigns, I never thought this country would vote to leave. It just seemed too irrational and xenophobic, and I believed in common sense in this country. Now, a bit later, I realised that I was probably idealising Britain. As a result of the referendum, I decided to get myself a British citizenship, so I would have my say in this society. That's how frustrated I was with the direction this country was headed at. And now in the day when the UK is leaving the European Union, I still hope it will come back to its senses and I hope that one day I will once again see this country as an open place that is looking forward and that I can be proud to call this place home again.
0: You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. (laughs) This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Time for our weekly reflection on the degree to which we are the wiser measured against seven days ago. We learned this week what the necessary qualifications are for being invited to have a bash at solving the world's least tractable diplomatic quandary, aside that is from having married the daughter of a game show host back in 2009. Jared Kushner, for it is he not only unveiled his long-awaited Middle East peace plan but gravely informed us that he has read 25 books on the Israel-Palestine conflict, if only any of the other diplomatic which have failed to crack this one, had thought of that. Anywho, we learned at last the details of Kushner's vision for the Middle East.
4: For a moment, imagine a new reality in the Middle East. Imagine a bustling commercial and tourist centre in Gaza and the West Bank, where international businesses come together and thrive. Imagine the West Bank as a blossoming economy full of entrepreneurs, engineers, scientists and business leaders.
0: If you're wondering how seriously to take this pitch, recall that Kushner's job prior to reading Israel Palestine for Dummies and 24 other volumes was real estate salesman. The people of the Middle East are very much being invited to buy into what practitioners of that trade would describe as an amazing development opportunity, and what anyone else should therefore recognise as a portal to hell. We learned that New Zealand will spend much of this year enjoying a general election campaign longer than many recent Australian governments. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern fired the gun on an election season due to last until September, which will include referendums on legalising marijuana and euthanasia, both of which could attract hefty yes votes after nine months of campaigning. Here's Lloyd Burr, Europe correspondent for NewsHub, on Wednesday's Globalist.
1: Absolutely I think it's gonna get people to the polling booth. My predictions for that, euthanasia I think is gonna be a big, a big landslide, it will pass. But recreational cannabis I think is still a big issue I don't think that's gonna pass. Yeah, the, the idea of you know people bogans and their garages blazing up on marijuana and going off to work and things like that's gonna put a lot of people off.
0: We learned something of an explanation for one of the quainter mysteries of modern political discourse from where, during large-scale expressions of anti-Western sentiment in Iran, do the chanting throngs source the American and Israeli flags they are setting ablaze. A Reuters investigation discovered a factory in Khomein, birthplace of the Ayatollah of approximately the same name, which makes American and Israeli flags to be burned by angry mobs. At peak periods of geostrategic indignation, the Diba Pacham factory can produce 2,000 painstakingly hand-printed flags per month. We learned that Italians are being enjoined to treasure their neighbourhood newsstands, or edicole. Such establishments have long been a focus of Italian urban life, a place where neighbours may gather to buy their morning papers and then discuss the contents. Their numbers have been reduced, however, by technology which makes it possible to instead yell at thousands of people around the world without leaving the house or indeed bothering to read anything. An initiative to reconnect Italians with the Edicolè has been undertaken. And here is Monocle 24's Edicolè desk chief Chiara Ramella on Thursday's briefing.
3: It consisted of Edicolè across the country staying open until later than usual, but mainly just kind of keeping their lights on into the evening to show in quite a literal metaphorical sense how much they are a beacon of kind of culture and and democracy for, for our squares and the fact that they shouldn't really go off.
0: We learned, or were invited to believe, that emojis are not, as any reasonable person might suppose, an insufferably cutesy 21st century abomination favoured exclusively by gurgling simpletons, but an evocative echo of something both primal and noble. For we learned of an exhibition at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, which seeks to link the digital yellow faces of today to the hieroglyphics of ancient Egypt. We also learned that this exhibition has been running for some weeks, but give us a break. There's been Christmas and New Year, and we've got Brexit coming up. We can't be everywhere. Here is Monocle24's pharaonic pictograms, desk chief Paige Reynolds on Tuesday's briefing.
3: What's interesting here is how this exhibition is using kind of a modern communication system to try and kind of get people interested in the history of antiquity. It's kind of got an interactive element as well. Visitors can quiz themselves on their understanding of emojis and their their newly acquired knowledge of hieroglyphs at the end. And they'll also be collecting data on, on differing interpretation of some emojis, which I'm sure will interest kind of linguists.
0: And we continued to learn of the reservoir of forgiveness on offer for people who can capably kick and or run with some variety of inflatable leather projectile. Australian rugbyist Israel Folau, almost as well known for his frothing homophobia off the field as his prowess on it, has found a club willing to sign him and the attendant public relations time bomb. Folau joined the Perpignan-based Catalan's Dragons, who play in Europe's Super League. In fairness to the rugby-playing world, responses have tended towards the robust, but none have been more stylish than that of Wigan Warriors, who the Dragons are due to visit on March 22nd. The Warriors have announced that they will hold, in Falau's honour, a Pride Day. While Wigan clearly require no lessons in hosting a bigot of Falau's calibre, there is one cue they might usefully take. In 2018, Falau's then club, Australian rugby union side Waratahs, visited Christchurch to play Crusaders. After Waratahs lost in a manner which suggested that God may not be on Falau's side after all, the stadium DJ played his team off with a choice of tune Falau was highly unlikely to have found amusing. From Monocle24, I'm Andrew Miller. You're listening to Monocle's House View, stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Finally, as the popular saying goes, all great love affairs begin with champagne and end with an EU
1: withdrawal agreement. Here is Monocle's Robert Bound. Well, this is what it's come down to. Divorce. At midnight the decree nisi became the decree absolute. I told her I'd leave her if she carried on eating all that garlic and letting people we hardly know come in and use the facilities and so I put my foot down. Hard. In fact, I practically shot it off. It's not a traditional sort of divorce, of course, because we still live over the road from each other and I'm fond of the wild old garden with the warm pool and she said that I can use it in the summer if I call in advance, so that's something, I suppose. She said she'd love to pop over sometimes for a pie and a pint of warm beer but she was sort of smirking when she said it. I couldn't tell if she was joking or not. Never could. Typical. Of course, I asked my friends what they thought before it got to this state of affairs, and they were split right down the middle. My old schoolmate shouted, Ditch the bitch! and bought me another drink. They said they liked her well enough, but you can never really understand someone foreign. Then they did the funny accents, which I've never been a great fan of. They said it would all be fine, totally fine, but they inherited small fortunes and played golf three times a week. I'm now wondering how I'll afford the green fees, what with that divorce bill. My other pals, the younger lot I've been working with, told me that we could all work it out with a bit of patience. But I had a hangover from the night with the other lot we ended up arguing again. Classic. I suppose we should be thinking about seeing other people. She said she's happy with her big family for the moment, but if I'm honest, I've been getting lonely this winter. There's the old flame across the pond. She seems very upfront, but I never quite think she's telling the truth. And then a very attractive technician came round to put a new phone line in the other day. Left her number. Seems too good to be true. Last night I had the dream again. I'm on a fishing boat in a storm. It's sinking and everyone in their oilskins are bailing out the wild water with anything they can find. But I dive in and make for the shore on my own. I never know if I sink or swim, but I wake up in a sweat with tears in my eyes. I feel like Withnell shouting Shakespeare into the rain. I think I miss her already. For Monocle, I'm Robert Bound.
0: Robert Bound, thank you. And that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View is produced by Daniel Beach. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and Christy Evans. Coming up at 20.00, a brand new edition of The Menu with Marcus Hippie. Monocle's House View returns tomorrow, 9am Saturday, London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Have a great weekend.